0: We're continuing on in our series of well, one-anothering, uh, how we are called to interact with one another. And this morning, our topic is be at peace with one another. And the passage we're going to explore to kind of figure out what this means and how to do it is found in Mark chapter 9, verse 50. Uh, let's pray together, and then we will uh, go through this verse together. Lord Jesus, we, we pray for your peace as we explore your command to us to have peace with one another, we pray that it would become something that is tangible for us. And Lord, as already been prayed, would your spirit be active this morning? and Would you be penetrating our hearts and minds through your words and through your convictions? And Lord, soften us so that we could receive the truth. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So Mark chapter 9, verse 50, we read salt is good but if the salt has lost its saltiness how will you make it salty again have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another now out of all the verses in the bible that talk about peace why this one i mean truly it seems to be talking about salt a lot more than peace there's literally hundreds of verses that talk about peace but this this is the only one that is a direct command to be at peace with one another. And when we use this phrase, one another, and specifically in this passage as well, we're talking about the followers of Christ. To be at peace with one another means our family. Those who are already following Jesus, this command is directed to us. That's what this call is for. Certainly there's uh, other mentions of how peace should shape our conduct, how we should seek peace with all people, there's a slightly different nuance with this one. When we speak with one another, it's directed to those who are already following Christ. It is an expectation that we, as believers, are living in peace with one another. So here's what we're gonna do this morning. First, we're just gonna talk about peace in the, in the general sense, uh, how the Bible uses it, pulling out a few examples, and then we're gonna come back to our main passage, talk about what's with all the salt, and then look at the greater context it's in, bringing it all back together, to have a greater understanding of this charge Jesus is giving to the church to be at peace with one another. So peace, would you imagine it for a moment? Feel free to close your eyes if you want to. What does it look like? What comes to mind? A quiet cup of coffee? Sitting on the beach with the sound of waves? That sounds nice. Walk in the woods on a calm day. The kids going to grandpa and grandma's house for the day. Maybe, it, maybe it's easier to imagine what peace is not. Well, it's not going to work. It's not the drive to the grocery store. It's, it's not c- cooking dinner with the kids pulling out your legs. It's, it's not the inner dialogue that's in my head. It's, it's not the state of our country. Isn't it interesting how so many of our ideas of what peace is is about the removal of something? Get rid of the noise, the business, the tension, the conflicts, and then I can be at peace. And even though there's some validity to that, actually, there's a a lot of validity to that, technically, that's our dictionary definition of peace, freedom from disturbance or, or a period with no war. You know, that sounds pretty amazing, but it's not enough. It's not enough to give us a proper biblical understanding of what peace is. The peace that we are able to experience is far greater. Jesus says in John 14, verse 27, he says, peace I leave with you, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus gives us a peace in a different kind of way. And he shows us what this peace is. Uh, We read, you know, the story of Jesus calming the storm. One account is found in Mark chapter 4. Jesus is sleeping in the boat and the disciples are freaking out and he kind of saunters up, looks over the waves and says, peace. Be still. This idea of peace indicates a calmness, of being steadfast in the midst of chaos. John 16, Jesus also said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Peace isn't necessarily a freedom from disruptions. Jesus gives us two promises. One, you are going to have problems. Two, I will give you my peace. Peace isn't freedom from disturbances. Peace is being steadfast in the midst of chaos. And it's not about what we get rid of. Peace is just as much about what we gain. Peace is not something you achieve, it's something that you can receive. It's not necessarily a result of our circumstances, It's, it's discovered in the midst of our circumstances. Peace is our gift from God, and he has given it to us as the fruit of the Holy Spirit. As believers, we have peace. Godly peace is in the midst of chaos by keeping in step with the Spirit. Uh, I recently had an experience with with this kind of piece. It was roughly three weeks ago, remember that first really warm day we had when uh, all the snow was starting to melt, all the streets were starting to flood, and my backyard also was turning into a bit of a swimming pool, which happens pretty much every year. I was was ready, I was prepared, I had a pump out there redirecting water, and all was good. Until I went to check on it, before I went to bed at 11 o'clock, the water had risen up, and the pump was not pumping. So, I turn it off and turn it on again, and off and on, and it's still not working. I grab the cord, the thing's buried in the water, so I try pulling up on the cord, and it's stuck. I was like, well, surely it just must be clogged. I take off my jacket, roll up my sleeves, reach down, and I can't even pull it out, it's so stuck. So, I grab a bucket and I start bailing water, trying to get down enough so I can free up the pump. And I can't keep up with it. There's no way that's going to work. The only way is to get this pump working again, so I grab a shovel and blindly digging until it finally loosens up, bring it inside, clean it up, and it still doesn't work. So I'm back outside. It's after midnight at this point, trying, uh, uh, praying, Jesus, why now? Why did the pump have to die now? It's been running all day. Why couldn't it die in the afternoon when I could just go buy a new one? The stores are closed, and the simple words, I give you my peace, and it was true. I wasn't stressed, which normally that was a very high stress point for me. I wasn't stressed, I wasn't angry, I wasn't even frustrated. I was just there doing the work that needed to be done. I give you my peace in the midst of chaos. But peace is much more than personal peace. Personal peace is good, but as I'm sure we've all experienced, uh, much of our peace is relational. And in order to discover peace, our tendency is to purge, right? This idea that peace is buried beneath all of this chaos and stress and disruption, if I can just push this junk aside, then I'll find peace and be happy. But consider this. If you're in a fight with your spouse, with your parents, with your boss, whoever it might be. Does peace come when that argument ends? No, because we're stuck living in this tension. What's going to ignite that fight again? Peace is not just the removal of conflicts. And peace is not just the absence of war, either. The book of Judges has a really good example for us. Uh, The whole book is kind of the cycle of the Israelites uh, falling away from God, getting conquered, defeated uh, by other nations, crying out to God to be saved, God saves them, they fall away, and the cycle repeats. In those moments of victory, when the Israelites do conquer the enemies, when God frees them, it doesn't say they have peace. It says they have rest. And there's a difference there, because a new enemy isn't far off on the horizon. When the book tells us that the Israelites do have peace is when they have peace, good standing with the nations around them. When there are others, and they are on good terms, then the threat of war is gone. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Peace isn't just the removal of conflicts, the absence of war, the absence of disruptions. It's not just an interpersonal peace. And These are certainly all components of it, but there is a better kind of peace, a peace that endures, one that isn't based on our external circumstances, the relational peace of Jesus. Colossians 1 verse 19 to 20 says, For in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus didn't just brush away the wicked things in order to bring us peace. He didn't go, you know what, let's let's just drop it and pretend this whole separation between man and God never happened. No, he turned towards the problem. He took on the task of making things right. It says that we were reconciled to him. Jesus addressed the issue and restored what was once broken. He fulfilled the law. He followed through on the punishment that was our own. The wrath of God was satisfied. The penalty was, pay, was paid in full. He made peace. That's important, he made it. It didn't just appear. It wasn't left in someone else's hands. There was no peace and then Jesus made peace. He's the creator of peace and he is offering his peace to us. Ephesians 2.14 says, for he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus brought us peace, and he is now the source of our peace. And because he did this, we are now capable of having both peace with God and we can have peace with one another. Jesus is our provision. We have what we need. Peace is not neglecting the difficult things of life. Peace is dealing with them appropriately. So the way that we see peace being used in the Bible has a far broader and fuller sense than just the absence of something negative. It actually indicates wholeness, completeness. It it includes things like tranquility and harmony, security, well-being, but we also see it as the restoring of something that has been broken. It's an indication of the relationship between people, between nations, and between God. And now it's something that's embodied within us as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Peace is a thing, most often it's used as a noun. It's a thing, it's a thing that Jesus has produced and is now offered to us. We receive peace. And now as we re- enter our main text found in Mark chapter 9, we discover that it doesn't stay a noun. It becomes a verb. It is now a call to action. Mark chapter 9, verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Peace isn't just a thing. It's a beautiful thing, but it's more than that. It's a call to action. It's something that we do. And as believers, we have been given peace. And now we're called to live a life that fosters and encourages peace with all people, peace with one another, just as Jesus has done with us. So how do we get there? How do we create peace? amongst one another. Well, our passage tells us we just need a little bit of salt in our lives. It tells us that salt is good, but we already know that. What makes salt good? it makes food taste better? That is a good thing. We basically use it every day. Salt pulls out the flavors, it enhances the flavors that are in food. So too, having salt in our lives pulls out and amplifies the good that is within us, the Christ-likeness that is within us. Salt also preserves food, it keeps food from spoiling, it prevents it from contamination and bacteria growth, it preserves it. Likewise, the responsibility of disciples are to preserve and purify and protect ourselves and others from becoming corrupt or contaminated by otherworldly principles. And I mean, salt has many other uses, we're all gonna be using it to melt the sidewalks, but I think in this context, that's probably what they use salt most often for is to make food better and to preserve food. Okay, but then how does salt lose its saltiness? Because if you look at pure salt, sodium chloride, it actually never does. It never loses its saltiness. But, but the salt that um, they would have used in these biblical times most likely almost always came from the Dead Sea. And it would have contained other minerals, other impurities, things like uh, carnalite and gypsum, which nowadays we mostly use in fertilizers. Uh, but gypsum, you know, gypsum board, drywall, uh, if you don't take that out of the cell and you put that on your food, I don't think that would taste very good. If it's not processed properly, then it's no longer usable for food. Or if salt was exposed to humidity, then the salt would have uh, absorbed the moisture and eventually evaporated, and the salt would also evaporate, leaving something that looks like salt but no longer tastes or functions like salt. It's deceptive. Uh, And it no longer has the ability of preserving food. Uh, I was talking with Lauren the other day, and she said I could use this story, but it's also okay because she's not here today. She's been to the Dead Sea, and she said there's literally just like chunks of salt on the bottom that you can just break off and take. You're not supposed to take them. But she did. This is her confession, not mine. <laughs> Someone from her group had the brilliant idea of, like, let's taste it. So he licked it, and, and the salt was so potent that it almost burned his tongue. So then everyone in the circle proceeded to lick it and experience it, which was, it was pre-COVID, it was a long time ago. I think that makes it better. She brought this thing home, and I don't know why she decided to do this again, but after some time, she decided to lick it again. And there was nothing. It didn't taste like anything. It didn't have that same tingling in your mouth. The salt had lost its saltiness. It was gone. Salt itself, in its pure form, can never lose its flavor unless it's exposed to certain conditions or it contains other additives if it is it becomes useless if the conditions of discipleship are not kept then likewise the disciples will become useless mark chapter 9 again salt is good we've confirmed that but if salt is lost as saltiness how do you make it salty again you don't unsalted salt has no purpose and if salt that is not salty has no purpose If a follower of Jesus is not demonstrating the qualities of Jesus, then what good are we to the world around us? We need salt. And we're so close to getting back to talking about peace, but truly we can't have peace with one another if we don't have salt. If we do not meet the conditions of discipleship. And only one chapter prior to this, Jesus very clearly lays out What is his expectation for disciples? What is the condition to be a disciple? Mark chapter 8, verse 34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is a key ingredient for us. If we are to live at peace with one another, this is our call. Take up our cross and follow Jesus. It's it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's not even about us. It's about jesus we need to be willingly we need to willingly set aside our own desires our own wants so that we can clearly think about the mission and purpose of jesus in this world so that we're able to be helpful well salted partners for the mission of jesus the mission of reconciling the world to himself the mission of making peace with all people now if we as a follower of jesus recognize that you know if we're all about being at peace with god that's our salvation then surely we would believe that um others can receive this as well and and that we would be able to demonstrate this for them what this peace looks like we'd be able to live at peace with one another but but jesus gives this command because that's simply not the case filling in some key parts of this story from Uh, Mark chapter 8, the call to take up your cross, and Mark chapter 9, the call to live at peace with one another. The disciples give two really good, and by really good, I mean really bad examples of a lack of peace. One, they were arguing with each other. Uh, It says that Jesus and disciples were walking down the road, and once they got to the place that they were going to stay for the night, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you guys arguing about on the road? And the text says the disciples kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Whoops. Jesus sits them down and tells them about true greatness. If, if anyone would be first, he must become last and servant of all. In other words, take up your cross and follow me. He is saying, you're, you're arguing, arguing about greatness it isn't getting you where you want to go. Our focus is not who did the best or who has done the most. It's about laying yourself aside for the love of another. It's about service. Don't tear each other down. Build each other up. Work together for a greater purpose outside of yourselves. Colossians 4, verse 6. By the way, I think this example uh, resonates with the local church today, all local churches. Colossians 4:6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person." Our words are powerful. And this instruction in Colossians, technically it's given for how we interact with the whole world, but if, if this is how we treat the whole world, how much more should we be treating one another? If the disciples had salted their speech towards one another, if they acted with grace and building one another up, they wouldn't have been in this predicament. The way we talk with one another should aim to purify and preserve. Example two, the disciples were rejecting people that weren't part of their inner circles. The disciples informed Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. To which Jesus responds, do not stop him. No one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. The disciples thought they figured it out. They banded together, they worked together, and agreed in unison that when they saw someone else doing the work that they were supposed to be doing, they shoot him away simply because he wasn't part of their inner circle. Therefore, he must have been doing it wrong. Therefore, he must have been posing a threat. Therefore, he must have been a false teacher. Therefore it was not important to themselves, and so on. When I read this, I think of the global church, how one church can interact with another church, or one ministry interact with another ministry, and sure, we might have some differences amongst us, but when we are missionally focused, when we are in line with Jesus, then we should be cheering one another on, not filled with skepticism. Discernment, yes, skepticism, no. Romans twelve eighteen. if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Again, this is an instruction for the believers on how they interact with the entire world. As far as it depends on you, how much more should we interact like this with one another? Jesus is telling his disciples to make every effort to work in unison so that you don't cause others to stumble. Watch out for your own sinfulness and make every effort to stay steadfast. Your conduct towards one another, it is important. It shows the world what we are really about. And it sets the tone for new believers. So after these oh-so-wonderful examples that the disciples gave to us, Jesus answers with a really stern warning. He says, it's better if you were to die than cause one of these young people to stumble. The whole passage, tie a millstone around your neck and cast into the sea. And then he says, you know, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better this way than to keep it and have it lead to death and destruction. If it's a foot, cut it off. If it's an eye, gouge it out. And, and Jesus wasn't talking literally here, but it carries the seriousness and the weight that it's intended to. Spiritual life is on the line. And if we're running around bickering at each other, trying to prove our dominance with the church down the street, shutting down good ministries because they're unfamiliar to us, then we're in grave danger of becoming a hindrance to our community. It's better to cut it off now before we have to give an account for it later. For everyone will be salted with fire. We've worked our way back to our main text. Mark 9:50 says, salt is good. 49, the verse immediately before that, everyone will be salted with fire. Now, fire is another very common metaphor in the Bible. It has a number of different representations in it. It can mean things like judgment, trials and testing, purifying and refining. And I think that last one is going to be the biggest focus in this case. Uh, Fire and salt, they're both common metaphors to be used separately, but we really never see them used in proximity with one another, to be used together. We see it in this verse, But the only other place we see them talked about together is with the Old Testament uh, sacrifices, the sacrificial system. And this would have brought pictures back to mind of the original audience of uh, making yourself right before God with a burnt offering, with fire offering. That is your atonement for sin. And then right after that, you give a grain offering, which is seasoned with salt. You put salt on your grain and offer it to God, and that is your worship. That was the Old Testament system. Salt and fire both represent purification. Fire removes the impurities and salt preserves the righteousness. Of course, we now offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. We no longer do the Old Testament sacrificial system. This is what we do, Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, do not be conformed to this world. I give you peace, not in the ways that the world does. We are salted with fire. Our Christ-likeness is further developed when we go through this difficult process of being refined by the fire, the eradication of sin in our lives. Here's the interesting thing I learned. Salt doesn't burn. You could take a bucket of salt and dump it in a fire, wait till the fire burns down, and you could go back and collect your salt again. What happens, actually, when you put salt in the fire, uh, it, it causes a bit of a chemical reaction where the flame turns a brighter yellow. Salt makes the fire burn brighter. Adding fire to the salt doesn't destroy it. It makes it brighter. The sufferings that we, as disciples, undergo, they don't destroy us, but but they purify us. The process of being refined and continuously moving farther from our sin and, and closer to Christ, it's difficult, yes. It's the call to pick up our cross, to humble ourselves and to diligently steer as far away from sin as we possibly can. But the results are worth it. Everyone will be salted with fire, salt, is good. It leads to peace with one another. Okay, how does salt lead to peace? Well, very simply, you can't pass salt around the table if you don't have any. Again, Mark 9 verse 50, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. When we have salt, we're exhibiting our Christ-likeness, primarily reconciling our relationships with one another, serving one another being guarded about what divides us, preserving the unity, focusing on the mission of Jesus, not ourselves. And then, then consequently, we will live in peace with one another. Now, some translations read, what I read for you says, you'll have, uh, have salt in yourselves, Um, Others will read, have salt among yourselves. It's very nitpicky. Ultimately, it gets the same meaning across, but I think among does a better uh, representation, creating a picture of what this looks like. To have salt in yourselves can kind of give us a picture of we're all lined up in a drive-through, each individually receiving our salt. Salt among yourselves is more of a family dinner where everyone's sitting down, and the salt is being passed back and forth, and harmonious relationship with one another. We are to make every effort to live at peace with all people. That means even those who blatantly disagree with us. Make every effort. And if peace does not come, because there are some where a contrasting worldview just cannot come to a common understanding, and there are times where peace may not come with the rest of the world. But Jesus is saying, if peace does not come, it should not be on our hands, it should be not due to us. Make every effort to live at peace with all people. Peace with the world is our diligent pursuit, and it's one that we should never give up on. Peace with one another, it's not an option, it's an expectation. Because we've all been recipients of the peace of God, we all have this baseline common understanding. Peace is attainable, we're all equipped to be at peace with one another. And the words, that, the words that we use with one another, those most often have the biggest impact on either derailing peace or bringing us back to peace, correct? We need to be really cautious about what we're saying to one another and when and where we are saying these things. It's our conduct that sets the tone for unbelievers and new believers, so let our speech towards one another be seasoned with salt. When conflict comes, we shouldn't avoid it. We address it appropriately because peace doesn't live in the tension. Peace lives in the reconciliation. And just because we might not be fighting at the moment doesn't necessarily mean that we have peace. Again, unresolved conflict is not peace. Peace comes when we've been reconciled to one another. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. So now for the elephant in the room. COVID restrictions are being lifted, at at least in Alberta, maybe a few other places, but we've heard it firsthand from you guys, from our family, from this church, that over these last two years, relationships have been splintered. The dividing wall, the things that have caused this division, restrictions and, and the like, if, if that's removed, is that enough? Will that bring us peace? Our temptation will, will want to be to say yes, to pretend, let's just say this never happened, let's go back to two years ago, pick off where we left off. But the reality is it might bring some relief, and it might even bring some rest to us, but it doesn't bring peace in its fullness. Peace will not come in its full until the issues and the hurts have been addressed and the relationships have been made right. We only have this one command, to be at peace with one another, and and it's not because it has little importance. It's because so much else of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is a contributing factor which all leads and results to peace with one another. So to summarize, How do we have peace with one another as common believers, as a family of faith? We look inwards before we look outwards. Uh, Peace is something that we receive, something that Jesus gives to us. And as a believer, he has given it to us. We have it already, and we look inwards. Am I doing everything in my power to be at peace with the people around me? Am I making every effort? And then we seek to serve others while empowering everyone to do their work in the name of jesus whether they are within our inner circles or not and most importantly of all we share our salt by exhibiting our christ likeness we pick up our cross to follow jesus the one who made peace the creator of peace he didn't brush our sin aside he fulfilled the law he dealt with it in His fullness. To have peace with one another is to be in a right, healthy, restored relationship with one another. To have peace is to be reconciled. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long for this peace. Lord, You have made peace. You are the giver of peace. We want to receive it. We want to receive more of Your peace. Lord, may it be tangible. And then, Lord, we pray for both wisdom and confidence, as we pursue to make right relationships with all people, yes, but specifically those in the family of faith. Lord, would you grant us your grace so that this could come to fruition. We pray for peace in the name of Jesus. Amen. As always, at the end of our service, we invite you up for prayer. Uh, Whether you would want prayer as we seek To write some relationships, or maybe there's been something else that's been on your heart or on your mind, whatever it might be, we invite you to come and pray. There'll be people stationed uh, at every side at the front here. To close with the benediction, it comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all.